0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love.
1: If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual
2: In the mid-1980s, when it became possible to get tested for the newly discovered virus, the human immunodeficiency virus that had already killed thousands of gay men and would go on to kill millions of people all over the world, gay, straight, and bi, I got my first HIV test. My boyfriend at the time insisted. I didn't want to do it. I was a little older than he was, and I'd been sexually active for a little bit longer, and my timing was terrible. The New York Times ran its first story about what would become the AIDS crisis in July of 1981. That story had the famous headline, Rare Cancer Seen in 41 Homosexuals. I'd come out a month earlier, that same summer. A few years later, as more guys were getting sick and dying, my boyfriend grew increasingly afraid. And he had every right to be afraid. I was afraid, too. We were all afraid. I was afraid I was already infected. And I was afraid what it would mean to know that I was. The first HIV test became available in 1985. Back then, you had to wait months for your test results, and there was no cure. Finding out you had HIV was like being told there was a ticking time bomb inside you that would go off sometime in the next two years. But unlike a time bomb, which would kill you swiftly and relatively mercifully, this viral time bomb, when it went off, was going to kill you slowly and painfully, and there was nothing anyone could do to help you. There was no cure, no treatment, no vaccine. So many guys were testing positive back then in the mid-1980s and killing themselves after getting their results that mandatory counseling was required to get an HIV test. It was nice to know after everything that happened between July of 1981 and the fall of 1985, after hearing so many hateful things said by religious conservatives, the moral majority as they called themselves then, they were, the moral majority, delighted to see us die. It was nice to know when the mandatory counseling was imposed that there were some people out there who didn't want us to die. I kept telling my boyfriend I would get tested and then putting it off, and finally my boyfriend threatened to break up with me if I didn't go get tested, and I made the appointment. A couple of weeks later, I was sitting in a small office at a gay health clinic in my college town with a very nice woman, my HIV testing counselor, who asked me if I had anything I wanted to live for And I said I wanted to outlive Queen Elizabeth II, not because I hated her, not because I wanted to see her dead, but because I was curious, I guess literally morbidly curious. I've always been obsessed with royalty for the history, not the gossip. Back then, the gossip was all about Charles and Diana and Andrew and Fergie. Now the gossip is about William and Kate and Meghan and Harry and Andrew. Oh, and the new British Prime Minister, if you want to read some really hot gossip, Search Liz Truss Day Caller on Twitter. But it wasn't the gossip that obsessed me. I was obsessed then, and I still am, with the Tudors and the Stuarts, with gossip so old that it had become history. The English Civil War, the Glorious Revolution, not ours, theirs, the Hanoverian Succession. People who listen to my show are sometimes surprised by just how boring I can be at parties and this history that fascinates me is a history that I recognize is stained by colonialism, slavery, racism, and empire, just like our history is. The woman who was about to approve me for an HIV test, when that came out of my mouth, I want to outlive Queen Elizabeth II, she looked at me like I was crazy. And maybe I was, and maybe I still am. But all I really wanted at that moment, besides not getting dumped, was to live long enough to see what would happen after Elizabeth II died. Would Charles become king? Would he keep the name Charles? Would the British monarchy, that archaic institution, somehow survive into the 21st century? He would. He did. It has. I lived long enough to find out. Now, anyone who listens to this show knows that I'm a fan of democracy and that I'm very concerned about the threat the Republican Party poses to our democracy and knows I am outraged right now and always have been by the anti-democratic elements baked into our political system, the U.S. Senate, the Electoral College, and anti-democratic outrages like gerrymandering and voter suppression. But I am also a little bit of a monarchist. Seems to me hereditary monarchy, constitutional hereditary monarchy, not incompatible with liberal democracy. When you think of a lot of countries lefties like to point to as Models, countries with decent housing policies, socialized medicine, better sex education, mass transit, bicycle infrastructure, humane prisons, Holland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, Spain, Belgium, all monarchies. Yes, Saudi Arabia too, not a constitutional monarchy, no system is perfect. But as we've seen in Hungary and Brazil and the United States and Russia, it's authoritarians who are a threat to democracy, no hereditary monarchs required. I was negative. By the way, way back then when I got my test results, still am. Not negative because I did everything right. I was pretty religious about using condoms to avoid HIV, but not perfect. Guys I know who were just as careful as I was got infected. Some died. Most, in the end, though, lived. There's still no vaccine or cure, but there are effective treatments. That said, people are still dying of HIV, If you want to see an example of the real legacy of colonialism and empire and racism, don't look to the people in funny costumes in London announcing the new king, Charles III. Look to HIV death rates around the world. According to the World Health Organization, 650,000 people died of HIV in 2021. The annual death rate from HIV has fallen by nearly two-thirds from its peak in 2004. It's fallen by 68%. But hundreds of thousands of people die every year, mostly poor people, mostly in Africa, mostly in countries, some created by colonial powers, that remain impoverished because of slavery, racism, colonialism, and empire. The fact is no one has to die of HIV anymore. Those treatments that are available now make it possible for someone with HIV to live a normal lifespan. Those same treatments make it impossible for someone with HIV to infect anyone else with HIV. And there's PrEP, a daily medication that protects HIV negative people from getting infected with the virus. But these treatments, these medicines are expensive and unavailable to many people in poor countries who need them. Unavailable to many people in our own country who are poor and need them. When he was president, Barack Obama said, housing and good schools and healthcare were the, quote, best reparations we could provide for the descendants of slaves living in the United States. And he meant at the time, the best reparations we could provide for political reasons at the time he was president. He was talking about what was possible, not what was right. Seems to me that making HIV medication and PrEP as widely available in Africa as they are in the West Not the best reparations that could be provided to people living in countries still recovering from colonialism and empire and slavery and racism, but a form reparations could take. Finally, we were reminded last week that just like in 1985, when I was getting my HIV test and Queen Elizabeth was still alive, there are people in the United States who want gay people to die. A federal judge in Texas, appointed by George W. Bush, once our worst president ever, now second worst, that federal judge ruled that companies cannot be required under the Affordable Care Act, aka Obamacare, to include PrEP in their health insurance benefits. The plaintiff in the case, a conservative Christian business owner in Texas, argued that including pre-exposure prophylaxis of preventative medicine facilitates and encourages homosexual behavior, intravenous drug use, and sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman, and this violated somehow his religious freedom. The decision by this federal judge puts all preventative care covered by the ACA at risk, not just PrEP, but cancer screenings, mammograms, drug and alcohol abuse counseling, and yes, contraception too. Appeals are expected. The Supreme Court will probably get involved in the end and, yeah, not confident about how that's going to end. What can we do about it? We can vote. You can vote. I know I'm a broken record on this, but you can and should vote for people who will appoint better judges. Vote for Democrats, big D Democrats, even imperfect ones, even ones who will or may have already disappointed you somehow because the judges they'll appoint, judges we'll have to live with for a very long time. This judge in Texas appointed in 2007, those judges appointed by Republicans, they don't just want to disappoint you. They want to see you and me dead. We're not going to give them that. We're going to outvote them, and together, we're going to outlive them. All right, coming up on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, what you got with Italian sex researcher Camilla Cheney on her groundbreaking research on monkeys using tools. Not the first time monkeys and other animals have been observed using tools, but the first time they've been identified using tools as toys, sex toys. And speaking of sex toys, also for Magnum subscribers this week, we have a new Sex and Politics with Jen Mason, the owner of Wink Wink, the not creepy sex shop in Bellingham, Washington, that came under fire from right-wingers over their sex ed classes and the fact that they are an all-ages sex shop. And in Savage Love, my column this week, a straight relationship that sounds more like a police state and that may not be a straight relationship at all, and a moving note from a reader who always cries after sex. Be sure to read my column right after you finish listening to this week's
3: Savage Lovecast. Hey, Dan. I'm the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a bisexual woman in my early 30s, currently in a seven-year relationship with a straight man. For the past year or so, I've had an increasingly strong desire to be with women, which has caused a rift in our otherwise solid relationship. My partner has no interest in being open and believes strongly in being strictly monogamous. I should also say that until I was 25 or so, I thought I was gay, so falling in love with him came as a surprise to me. And this is my first serious relationship with a man. So my question is, is this something I should break up with him over? I can't imagine going the rest of my life without being able to act on my desire to be with other women.
2: Yeah, absolutely. This is something that you should break up with your boyfriend over. Seven years is a lot to toss aside. I would, you know, if I could jump in a time machine, sidle up to you after a year or encourage you to call me after a year uh, and unpack this because seven years is a, a lot to walk away from. You've made an enormous emotional investment in this man and this relationship, but. You're not, you're clearly, hence the call, not willing to pay this price of admission forever, meaning no pussy for you forever. You're not ever going to get to be with a woman again so long as you're with him. And so, yeah, if you want to flip who's paying the price here, you can go to him and say, look, for the last seven years, I was willing to pay the price of admission, be monogamous, not ever get to sleep with women to be with you, but I've come to realize that that's not a price of admission I'm willing to pay anymore. I can't pay that price for the rest of my life. So if we stay together, you're going to have to pay the price of admission at some point or now going forward. You're going to have to, to be with me. If you want to be with me, you're going to have to make an allowance. Uh, I'm going to need an accommodation that allows me to pursue sex with other women and then that becomes a conversation about what that looks like is there a way to structure that that makes him feel more comfortable you know is what he's concerned about is you falling in love with somebody else and leaving him you know of course he runs the risk of getting left if you can't ever sleep with another woman you're contemplating leaving him for that reason is there a way to uh, addresses anxiety, work with that fear by, you know, your selection of other women to sleep with. You're only gonna sleep with women who have partners. You're only gonna sleep with women when you're out of town. You're not gonna sleep with women, you're not gonna date anybody. These will be hookups and one-offs. Maybe you'll only seek out women who are bi, but heteroromantic romantic and already have male partners. No lesbian hookups. For You you know, is there a way for you to go out there and get some pussy that's going to make him feel less insecure or threatened if that's the issue? If it's just an issue, if nobody else gets to touch my girlfriend, that we are 100% sexually exclusive, you don't touch anybody else with your genitals, nobody else touches you with their genitals, nobody makes you come but me, nobody makes me come but you. If he's that kind of monogamous, well yeah, you guys aren't right for each other. You are sexually incompatible. Yeah, maybe this relationship is over that you so casually toss out there that you might have to end the relationship over this. Kind of makes me think it might be over, that you've already made a decision that it's over. If you're looking for support, if you're looking for somebody to back you up on this being a valid reason, End a relationship? Well, I'm here to do that. This is a perfectly valid reason to end this relationship. You don't want the same thing he wants sexually. That's the er, overarching issue here. You are sexually incompatible. And people who are sexually incompatible, yeah, sometimes they can make it work long term, but sexually incompatible people in a sexually exclusive relationship very rarely can make it work. Over the long term.
1: Hi Dan, I'm the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a straight guy living in Seattle, and I've been seeing a wonderful woman for about two months now. And my problem is that I can't seem to come from low jobs. I should say that we our sex life is mostly just oral and fingering at this point. I possibly have ED. I have struggled to maintain an erection long enough or hard enough to penetrate my partner. So for the meantime, I'm working around it with oral and fingering, which. Is uh, sufficient for me to give her toe curling orgasms, and she never goes away unsatisfied. But she does seem to be disappointed that whenever, like, she goes to return the favor for me, she can't make me come. Uh, she said on numerous occasions that, you know, she's going to make me come and that it's going to be really satisfying for her when she does. But she said recently that, you know, it, our relationship seems lopsided because. Even though i've given her numerous orgasms at this point she hasn't been able to give me one i've told her that i was circumcised about four years ago as an adult that i had a very rare condition called uh phimosis balanitis or phimosis balanensis Affects one in 200 men it was a ring of scar tissue in my foreskin due to a i think a fungal infection after getting information from my doctor i decided that the best option was to get circumcised and i've told her that might not be her, you know, it might just be me. I might just be, you know, physically incapable of coming from a blowjob. But she still wants to have that satisfaction. Now, maybe once we have penetrative sex, then I'll be able to have an orgasm that she can see, that she can have that satisfaction of having made me come. But in the meantime, I'm not sure what to do. Dan, are there guys who lose the ability to come? or at least from a blowjob after getting circumcised? Is this something that I just have to like retrain my dick of how to come in the same way that I had to relearn how to masturbate? What do I do here?
2: There are guys out there who can't come from oral, who can't come during blowjobs, who didn't have phimosis, who weren't circumcised in adulthood. It's possible that it seems likely if you could come from blowjobs before, you were circumcised. It's likely that the circumcision had something to do with why it's a problem now. Um, Also all this trauma centered around your dick with the phimosis, with the circumcision and adulthood, which can be very painful. That has to be psychologically not helpful for you right now and maybe contributing to the ED. And you need to say to your girlfriend that the psychological pressure that she's putting you under by making your ability to come during a blowjob some sort of referendum on how attractive you are or how attracted you are to her, that's not going to help either. She's going to have to be a little bit more patient uh, with your dick. And you say that you relearned how to masturbate, and I assume that if those attempts when you were relearning how to masturbate were unsuccessful, you would have said so. So you are capable of having... And orgasm, you are, you can get there. So, what you need to say to your girlfriend, I think, right now, is that you can come, you can make yourself come, you want to come with her, and this is at least for the time being. As you grow into sex with her, as you and your circumcised dick, uh, and once you get into treatment for ED, which actually can bring about its own set of complications, which we'll get into in a second, that your orgasms, rather than something that she's going to do for you, solo, look, ma, no hands, no hands of yours, that your orgasms are something that you two, at least for a while, are going to do together. It's going to be a bit of a relay race, tag team effort, where she's blowing you and you're stroking yourself. You can teach her, you can show her at least a few times. Sit together, masturbate together, but don't touch each other. Let her see exactly how it is you stroke yourself. Let her see the technique that works when you are masturbating yourself to orgasm. And then let her to attempt that exact same technique with you. Use your words, talk her through it while she's stroking you. Tell her a little bit more pressure, a little bit more speed up and over the head, which some guys like. Maybe just sticking to the shaft with only incidental pressure at the lower part of the glands, which is what other guys like. Train her how to get you there by showing her how you get yourself there and then the both of you together getting yourself there. And then you can transition to hand jobs. And it is, I think, a truth universally unacknowledged perhaps should be acknowledged more often that most blowjobs are at least most successful blowjobs are at least 40% hand job that it's not just the mouth and face fucking or throat fucking that often the person giving the blowjob is incorporating fist is incorporating a clenched hand and sometimes taking a break and a breather where they're just working the dick with their hands this is one of those moments when in a response to a straight couple i sometimes say hey go and watch some gay porn and you will see what i'm talking about guys giving other guys blowjobs there's a lot of hand action going on and very few guys in gay land regard incorporating hands and in that 40 percent sometimes more sometimes 50 60 percent of the blowjob that is actually hand job as some sort of failure so The fact that you can get yourself there, the fact that you can get yourself off means that you can get there and get off with your girlfriend. But it's going to be a co-project at first. And your girlfriend, if she's as wonderful, loving, and compassionate, and kind as I hope she is, should be able to understand, should be able to wrap her head around, this isn't because I'm not attractive. This is because a few years ago, dude got a big, important Nerve ending packed chunk of his dick cut off, and we're still carving, he's still carving some new neural pathways here for the pleasure centers of his brain to get zapped by the stim being applied to his dick. All right, for the erectile dysfunction, when you get those meds, uh, and I would urge you to, to go and get those meds, they have a physiological effect, also a psychological effect that can really help guys feel confident about obtaining an erection and therefore make it easier to actually obtain that erection but some ed meds for some men can delay orgasm so you may find that you're hard and enjoying penetrative sex and still having difficulty climaxing if you're going to get ed meds and that's a conversation you're having with your girlfriend you need to have a conversation about that potential side effect so that she doesn't read into it or misinterpret the fact that even with the ED meds it takes you a long time to come or you might even with ED meds need to incorporate some stroking during penetrative sex to get you to that point of orgasmic inevitability as another failure on her part to turn you on enough or another indication that you're not as attracted to her as she is to you. Not so. Delayed orgasm taking a little bit longer to come. little bit more difficulty in climaxing that is a potential side effect that many men experience using et meds and she needs to know that before you go in lest she wind up with more hurt feelings uh because it's taking you as long or longer to come as it did before all right so Those are my assignments for you. Make those orgasms a co-project right now. Get on those ED meds. Train her on how you masturbate. Let her see how you masturbate. And then gradually, you'll be able to hand your dick off to her. You know, Maybe those first few times that you guys are doing it together, working on your dick together, it'll be 80% you and 20% her. And then it'll be 40% her and 60% you. And then 60% her and 40% you. And you will get there. You will get there in time to the point where it is... 95 or 100% her work in your deck and five to 0% you assisting.
4: Hi, Dan. I've been married in a heterosexual relationship for about 13 years. And only recently have I been able to start advocating for my pleasure. I'm kind of a late bloomer in masturbating and Uh, using toys on my own and finally brought up the courage to tell my husband that I wanted him to prioritize my pleasure in bed. We've been having a really long dry spell. He is feeling insecure because he feels like he doesn't pleasure me and wants me to tell him what I like and don't like and I'm just I guess because of Catholic upbringing, I'm just having a really hard time expressing that, but I'm doing a lot of masturbating. I'm doing a lot of reading and listening to erotic podcasts, things like that, and just getting in touch with myself and trying to bring my whole self to the relationship. In the conversation where I finally was able to ask my husband to prioritize my pleasure rather than focusing on what he wants even though he has been asking me to tell him what I want he still seems overly concerned with my expression of pleasure as something that you know satisfies his need and makes him hard and makes him feel good and makes him feel like a confident lover I've asked him to go to sex school online and try to figure out ways to pleasure women, I feel like he's always been sort of like a one-sided lover. But in the conversation where I told him I hadn't had an orgasm in our marriage in 13 years, and I felt like that needed to be a priority, he told me that he, even though he's ejaculated, pretty much Nearly every time we've had sex and I mentioned that, like, you've had the orgasms, I haven't. He told me that I knew nothing about male orgasms and that even though he's ejaculated, that does not necessarily mean that he's had an orgasm and that he hasn't just been having a ton of pleasure or orgasms either and that I don't know anything about male orgasms. I feel like maybe this is completely bullshit i felt like i knew what a male orgasm was and now i'm sitting here doubting myself and googling this it sounds insane for me to be questioning this but because i just feel like i'm maybe being gaslit and i just the the shock of him saying that is just kind of throwing me off where he seems to be taking my issue and making it his issue I just thought that I would ask you to weigh in.
2: Honest to God, what I was thinking the entire time I listened to your question was, I hope there's no mention of children and there wasn't because what I wanted to tell you after listening to most of your question and then when I began to root for no kids, no kids, no kids was to divorce this man child with the easily bruised ego who's been telling you throughout your entire marriage that he wants you to tell him how to give you pleasure, how to prioritize your pleasure, but only within the constraints of shit that makes his dick hard and gets him off. And you have indeed, in the last 13 years, been getting this guy off, unless you were accidentally milking his prostate or accidentally giving him ruined orgasms which is a thing the kinksters sometimes do uh yeah he's been having orgasms he's been blowing loads his ego was wounded you don't mention whether or not during the entire 13 years you've been together you were faking orgasms i assume that you were or could have been often uh female copulatory vocalizations uh women making noise uh 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 help get a man closer and a lot of women will engage in that sort of behavior not you know from a dishonest or manipulative point but you know they want their partner to get off not even just to get it over with but to enhance their partner's pleasure and he may have read those noises you might have been making as orgasms and you may have indeed faked orgasms and so hearing after 13 years that you never gave your wife an orgasm not even once, uh, you could see how that might wound his ego. You can see how that might inspire him to turn around and say, well, you never gave me an orgasm either, but you were giving him orgasms. Milking someone's prostate is a varsity level sex skill. That's not something you do by accident. It's also not something you do unless you're crawling up inside your husband's ass with some fingers or toys. A ruined orgasm, which is when you Bring a man to the point of orgasmic inevitability, my favorite phrase, which I somehow always have to say, like, pigs in space, the point of orgasmic inevitability. Yeah, that's really intentional. You really have to be reading someone's dick. And that's still an orgasm. It's just an orgasm where you get a guy to the point of orgasmic inevitability where the cum is going to fly out of his dick. Whether or not you continue to stimulate him and you withdraw all stimulation – And what a guy has at that moment with a ruined orgasm is an orgasm, but without the usual accompanying waves of sexual pleasure that come with the stimulation continuing through the orgasm. So yeah, odds that you were accidentally milking his prostate, odds that you were accidentally giving him ruined orgasms, I would say zero. So he's been coming this whole time. If he reacted in anger uh, and because he felt like he'd been lied to for 13 years by you and so he lied to you in retaliation and he can calm down about that and have a rational conversation about what happened and why he had the infantile reaction that he had when you finally did what he'd been asking you to do this entire time, which was talk about how to pleasure you, let him know how to pleasure you. And you can back way the fuck up and have a constructive conversation about your sex life and what it might look like going forward. So it was as pleasurable for you as it was for him. Sometimes we talk about centering pleasure, you know, centering a woman's pleasure. Well, during sex, you want to center both partners or all partners Pleasures, and there may be times when you're having sex that's entirely about his pleasure, and his pleasure is centered, and times when you're having sex where your pleasure is centered, or times during the fr- a, a solo, you know, a discrete sex act, and times during one, you know, sex session where whose pleasure is being centered at any given moment kind of shifts back and forth. Rarely, despite the way heterosexual sex is portrayed in porn and in film. On television, rarely do two people have simultaneous orgasms. It's almost always the case that someone is getting close, about to get off. The other person sort of throws themselves into whatever needs doing to get their partner off. And then it's their turn. Usually right away, the favor is returned right away. Or uh, maybe a little breather maybe some ice cream, maybe some butterscotch pudding, and then the favor is returned. And, you know, if he came first and his pleasure was being centered at that moment so that he could get off, then maybe after a breather, a little bit, give him a little time, a little refractory period, break, he comes at you in such a way that you want him to come at you with the toys you want him to come at you with and centers your pleasure and gets you off. Also, you know, one of the superpowers, if you're a woman who can have more than one orgasm, is for him to get you off, give you an orgasm, center your pleasure, and then for the focus to shift and you to center his pleasure and get him off after you've already had an orgasm, and then maybe you get a bonus orgasm after then. If you guys can work together constructively on this, you can make it work. But if your husband, and this is why I was happy to hear you had no kids or Maybe you do, but you didn't mention them, but I'm hoping you don't have kids. If your husband is one of those men who is so insecure by a woman's capacity for sexual pleasure and that her capacity for sexual pleasure isn't all about what his dick does to her, that he can't do for you, that he can't ever focus on your pleasure, center your pleasure And he's going to be an infantile brat and insist you never made him come despite all the ejaculatory evidence to the contrary. Yeah, you might want to divorce his ass and go find other guys, better guys, who will sometimes want their pleasure centered, but will also be willing during those same sex sessions at other times to center your
5: pleasure. Hi Dan, I'm a 34-year-old cis gay man from Germany and I have a question for you considering sexuality I'm in a relationship with my boyfriend for one and a half years and since you were talking about it in one of your past episodes I think I might be sexual myself. In the beginning of our relationship we were quite sexual and we had a lot of sex, I was totally into him. I was initiating sex, but now i I don't feel like that anymore and it's been an issue in my past relationships as well that usually my sex drive fades the longer I'm together with my boyfriend. I've raised this issue with my boyfriend and talked to him about phrase sexuality, but he doesn't really believe it's a thing, so yeah, first part of my question is how do we actually know it's a thing, and the second part of my question is, what can I do now I mean I'm a bit stuck here. I'm just realizing that that is a pattern in my relationships. I've raised this topic with my boyfriend. Obviously, he's not very happy about it. He, he would love to have more sex with me. But yeah, it's hard for me because I don't feel drawn to him anymore as much as I did in the beginning of a relationship. I love him. We are happy together. But our sex drive, or at least mine, is just gone.
2: We know that asexuality is a real thing because the data is in, the research has been done. Frequent guest, Dr. Laurie Brodo, is responsible for a lot of that research at the University of British Columbia. I don't think I could do a summary of it here. I'm not sure off the top of my head I recall how you test for or measure the prevalence of asexuality in any given population, but it's a real thing. And it is a real thing that we first became aware of because people began to identify as asexuals and then the sexual researchers after some doubters like me expressed doubt about this concept rushed in to do the research and assure us that it is real people have begun to identify as phrase I think it's a name that's been attached to uh, a pattern that a lot of people observed in themselves or their sex partners where there was The closer they got to somebody, the more in love with them they were, the more time they spent together, the more intimate the relationship became, the less sexually attracted to their partner that they were. Now, this is a thing I think happens in a lot of long-term relationships. There is often, after decades together, a kind of siblingification of relationships where the intimacy begins to swamp the eroticism, for eroticism to exist, it does require some distance, as uh, famously Esther Perel said, to, to desire is to want, and it can be difficult to want what you have. And if you're with somebody and committed to them and married to them and living with them, you have them. How do you want that? How do you rejigger things? How do you you know twiddle all the knobs so that there is still some gap between you, some space between you that has to be bridged with wanting and desire and longing. And for a lot of people, that a lot of people in relationships, that can be done. But some people that can't be done. And the drop-off, not quite the siblingification, but the drop-off in desire tends to come a lot sooner. And I think it's those people who've begun to use phrase sexual, got their own pride flag, and began to identify as for asexuals to describe their experiences in sexual and romantic relationships where there's a lot of desire at the outset and then that tanks, not after 10 years of marriage and the stress of children, that tanks after six months, nine months, a year, after moving in together, after people start saying, I love you to each other. What do you do with that? If that is how you function erotically and caller, that sounds like, you're a er example kind of sexual. You're a textbook. Not that the textbooks on sexuality have been written yet. I don't think they have. But you're kind of a textbook sexual. You met him. You wanted to fuck him. You fell in love with him. You don't feel that pull anymore. All right. How do you control for that? How do you make your partner happy? Well, you could go through the motions. You could have a lot of sex that... You weren't necessarily that into you could take one for the team over and over and over again for the next, I don't know, 50 years that you're together until one of you dies at an advanced old age or, you know, one of the advantages of being gay, you can create other accommodations and outlets that allow for you two to be together, to love each other, to be each other's romantic partners, life partners And for you both to seek sex that's exciting and, you know, a lot of variety and new outside the relationship. You know, if you can go out and have sex with other people and feel affirmed and feel desirable and feel erotic and then come home to you and feel loved and cared for and seen and taken care of, maybe that would make your partner happy. But that's not going to make your partner happy if what he wants is everything in one guy. Where he's desired by his romantic partner's life partner, his boyfriend, fucked by his romantic partner, life partner, boyfriend, and also gets to live with him and be intimate with him and casual with him and easy with him. If he wants that all in one guy, you may not be the guy that he can have that all with. He may need to go find... Some other guy. And if he does, and if you find yourself single again, knowing this about yourself, I- embracing phrase sexuality as an identity, even in advance of the researcher studies coming in to show that it's a real sexual orientation, you already got the pride flag. You don't have to wait necessarily for the research and data. I think you have an obligation to your future partners and to yourself to disclose this. There are guys out there who want loving, committed relationships but want total sexual freedom and don't necessarily, you know, after that initial burst of new relationship energy and, you know, can't wait to drink a gallon of this new guy's spit and whatever else – who will want, you know, basically a companionate relationship, maybe with a little bit of sex around the edges, maybe, you know, grooving every once in a while on each other during a three way with somebody else there to heighten the experience. But for the most part, want sex with other people and a lover and partner that they can come back to at home. I've known a lot of gay couples that go out on sexual adventures together, have sex with other guys together, have sex with other Guys separately, but, you know, roughly the same time or in the same space together and then love each other very much and go home with each other and their expectations are aligned. And yeah, that may be what you need. You may need someone whose expectations aren't in conflict with your sexuality, but in harmony with your sexuality. You may need to be in a relationship In the future with someone, you know, if you can't work out something with the boyfriend you're with now, if you guys can't transition to a different kind of relationship in the future, if you're with somebody else, you may want to be with somebody who is very sexual like you.
3: Hi, Dan. My question is, how
4: many times do you give someone a chance? Talking with a new partner, we have a good relationship over text, video chatting, sexting, all that. But he won't meet me. How much longer do I do this for?
2: Why won't he meet you? Usually when someone is wasting your time, when they're catfishing you, sending you photos, uh, trying to draw you into long, extended text message exchanges that get explicit, that are arousing, that person is basically forcing you or asking you to write erotica for them bespoke erotica bespoke dirty stories starring not necessarily themselves but some idea of who they wish they were but the fact that this guy is video chatting with you in addition to sexting with you means he's probably not you know he can't be using fake photographs he can't be lying about who he is so there's some weird disconnect here you know who he is. You know what he looks like. You're still into him. He knows who you are, knows what you look like. He's still into you, but he wants to keep it online. And there's some reason there. You know, People who just want to swap photos that may or may not be them and get into endless DM exchanges or text exchanges, they just want you know those exciting text messages. That's all they want from you. They never want to meet. They can't meet because they aren't who they've represented themselves to be, fake photographs, they've lied, 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 lied. But video chatting, that's not a fake photograph unless he's using some very high-end AI technology to create videos in the moment. Uh No, no, that, that that's who he is. So there's some reason. Maybe he's married. Maybe he's not where he has led you to believe he is in the world and meeting isn't possible and he doesn't want to tell you that yet, but there's some reason that he is now, not initially, but now wasting your time and frustrating you because he's refusing to meet. I think if you you ask when the time is to call it off, when the time comes to end things with him, I think if you're frustrated enough that you've called me and then you've had to wait a week for my response to creep into your earbuds, the time has already arrived for you to tell him, look, I'm not interested in chatting anymore. I want a real-time IRL face-to-face meeting to see if we can start getting together. I want a real relationship. I don't want one that's entirely mediated by technology. And if you don't want that, we're not compatible. We don't want the same things and we're going to have to go our separate ways. And this this energy that you're currently expending on him And in the hopes of having some sort of real in-person relationship with him is energy wasted, an energy you could be expending on someone new that you met on the apps that you could swap a few messages with who does want to meet up with you in person and not just sexed with you or have dirty video chats with you, but have dirty, dirty, hot, sexy sex with you. In person, in your person, on your person, near your person. Yeah, the time has come to cut this guy off. Even though we don't know what's going on with him. Maybe you threatening to cut him off is going to be what he needs to hear to show the fuck up at a coffee shop and meet face to face. But if you don't just threaten but actually cut him off and he doesn't then immediately pivot to, all right, all right, let's meet, let's meet, let's meet, to block him, don't waste another moments thought on him go find a guy who wants to swap a few photos share a few text messages and then make a date all right we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they have published for a little segment we call
0: what you got wow <laughs>
2: Joining me for this, what you got? Camilla Cheney, a doctoral candidate at the University of Lethbridge. Hey, soon to be Dr. Chenny, thank you so much for coming on the Savage Lovecast.
6: Yeah, my pleasure. So, what do you got? We've conducted a study on uh, those monkeys living in Bali. They belong to a species called uh, long tailed macaques. So, they're Balinese long tailed macaques. And these guys are engaging in this stone-directed form of play, and this has been known for for several years, but what they do as part of this activity, they've actually been uh, shown to direct some of those actions to their genitals. So in something that looks like genital stone tapping and rubbing, so literally repetitive tapping and rubbing of stones into the genital area.
2: Okay, so I've heard of animals using tools, and that was a huge deal, like 50 years ago, 40 years ago, when I was a little kid. They found out that you know they discovered chimpanzees using little tiny straws to get termites out of a mound, and it was like, oh my god, humans aren't the only animals that use tools. So basically, until your study, we were the only animals that use sex toys, and what you're saying is these monkeys are using rocks as sex toys.
6: This is not the first uh, exactly study that found that, but it's definitely probably the first of a big proportion, let's say. So there have been anecdotal reports of other animals uh, using object uh, as a possible way of masturbating, but let's say for genital stimulation. The, the difference with this study is that uh, um, what we found is that it's really spread, at least in the population that we, we have observed. And that's to say that the, this group, it's kind of special in some ways because they live in a touristy area, so they are living in this monkey temple and uh, they are provisioned. So their time budget, uh, it's a little bit different compared to maybe more to different population that live outside urban areas and outside monkey temple, I guess.
2: So these monkeys aren't looking around all day for food. They have a lot of free time because humans feed them and they're finding ways to entertain themselves in their free time. And that was what your study was about.
6: Yeah I mean the study was about uh, uh, trying to see whether these monkeys engage in this broader behavior that is directed to stones uh, which it's called stone handling which we're not co- entirely sure yet uh, how to define like how to collocate but it has a lot of element of playful manipulation so lack of immediate function and uh, while watching that uh, the, that kind of like was was part of it.
2: So stone play, they play with stones. And you went out and observed these monkeys and you found that they were using these to stimulate their genitals.
6: We have observed this behavior quite for some times at this point, but we waited until we could actually test the, the idea that it was you know sexually motivated because just the fact that this behavior is directed towards the genital it might look to us that it's sexually motivated, but until tested, we can't really say that.
2: How do you test for that? How do you test for sexual motivation? In That's a
6: good question. Well, I mean,
2: temple monkeys in Bali.
6: Yeah, I mean, we we cannot really ask them uh, whether they find it, uh, you know, <laughs> like sexually appealing or not. So. I mean, in animal research, we usually use proxies and indicators. So for these studies, we used a combination of physiological and behavioral proxies. So for physiological one, we used penile erection for males, which is pretty straightforward. And for females, we used the sign of fertile period. So those females have cycles and at times they are visually and behaviorally fertile. So we use that as an indicator. Unfortunately is a little bit more conspicuous with with females, so, so like it's hard to see, for example like vocalization or facial expression that would suggest in short term uh, mm-hmm. arousal so that that's probably also part of why we we didn't find such a strong result for females. And then for behavioral one we looked at literally solicitation or perceptive behavior towards. The outer
2: six. Okay, so when you say you're looking for physiological cues, if the if the male monkeys were using these stones and getting erect, you took that as an indication that they were using the stones to facilitate those erections, to, to arouse themselves. And you tracked the female monkeys' menstrual cycles to see if they were using the stones at a period when they were fertile, aroused, might be seeking sexual contact. And those were the indications. Physiologically, that these were not just regular stones or incidental touching?
6: Yeah, I mean, we didn't have to start to track their menstrual cycle. We actually just, uh, you can visually um, assess, like, at the time, if the monkey eats, uh, like, the, basically their bottom gets swollen. So you can you can combine that, uh, but you also should, and wh- that's what we did, paired it with uh, um, behavioral expression of uh, sexually motivated behavior in female, which usually suggests the fertile period.
2: Okay, so they're primates, we're primates. Is this a learned behavior? You know, they're social animals as we are social animals. Is this a learned behavior? Or do you think there's something instinctual about this? If you observe the same monkeys in the wild who didn't grow up in this temple where they don't have to worry about feeding themselves, they don't have as much free time as the temple monkeys, do you think you would see this behavior?
6: Well, that's a hard uh, question to confidently, you know, parse out. But uh, this behavior has a lot of element of being a learned behavior, because as I mentioned, it's probably a behavior that transformed from this broader manipulation of stones in a playful context, and that behavior is what we called uh, a cultural behaviour because it's only expressed by some population of that species. Several species of macaques engage in stone-directed play, so stone handling, but uh, within those species not everyone does it. So it really has element of being learned, and especially because we've seen that it's socially learned across generation and between um, members. So
2: humans used to tell themselves, human homo sapiens used to tell themselves that we were superior to other animals uh, because of speech, because we used tools. Other animals didn't use tools because we had feelings and we looked at other animals and said, they don't have feelings. And we're increasingly discovering that other animals have feelings, that there is some speech-like component to the way whales communicate in the oceans, the way other animals vocalize, what does it mean about us that there are these other animals out there that we've recognized now use tools in the same way that we now recognize that other animals engage in homosexual behavior? We used to say that that wasn't a thing that animals engaged in. Um, only humans were that perverse. When I was very young, the religious right would say homosexuality is so disgusting, not even animals do it. Now they have to say homosexuality is something animals do. Humans should be better than that. What is the line about tool usage now that we've observed it in the last few decades in so many different animal species versus, you know, what does it teach us about us?
6: That is a weird question because I ask myself that pretty regularly and I try uh, as an animal like, behavior researcher to separate myself from these constant human comparison and with tool use that's almost unavoidable because tools are so pivotal for human lives that that's always like well animals do it so you know that they might be so smart because they use tools but when we talk about tool use there's a lot of type of tool use and some of them are very pre-programmed so like very stereotype and very like expressed in the same way by everybody in a, uh, in a species and there's not much variation so that doesn't really require high level cognition then there are other forms of instrumental action with objects that seem to be much more complex but that doesn't mean that they require such high level cognition so to try and answer your question what does like tool use tell like in other animals and in this instance tell us about humans i don't know if i care about what that tells us about other humans i care what that means for an animal that yes it's uh, evolutionarily closer to us than an insect but it has its own ecology its own environment and its own you know needs and um, Drives, I guess. I think what what's important, if I if I can, it's uh, that this instance that uh, we reported, and it's of course not the only one, but adds to a literature that pro- uh, suggests that tool use it's not exclusively from a survival, um, you know, dependent perspective. So we think about tool use, and we think about, as you said, chimpanzee sticking uh, a stick to extract termites. We think about nut cracking, but uh, uh, survival uh, in terms of foraging or sex, uh, like reproductive, conceptive sex, uh, are not exclusively the driver for an instrumental action. And this is an example of it.
2: So, this is an example of an animal using a tool purely for pleasure, not to survive. Are you familiar with the, and I guess, I, you know, backing up for a second, I guess I was guilty of trying to center humans in this story again. Like, we used to tell ourselves that because other animals didn't use tools, we were special, and I'm, like, pivoting to, okay, we have them, they're using tools, how are we special still? So I'm guilty of that, wanting to put humanity at the center of everything. Before we go, I wanted to ask you about the film 2001. Are you familiar with it? I am. There's that famous scene where the primates, the sapiens of some sort learn to use tools and it's a basically a monkey with a bone beating another monkey to death and there's something about that scene that implies that like the first tools were used for violence and your research may show that the first tools used by our ancestors may not have been used for violence but for pleasure and that's a more hopeful story i think
6: I don't know if that's the first way they use tools as or you know if like when you learn it to use it uh, in a maybe violent way then you try to exploit it for other reason. so I can't really date it I guess but uh, yes it is probably a, a, a more hopeful or happier like sweeter story Overall.
2: Yeah. Did the first animal, our ancestor, a common ancestor with these monkeys that you studied in, in Bali, did they use a tool to first to beat something to death or to beat themselves off? And we may never know the answer, but at least that question allows for something a little bit more, I don't know, hopeful, like we said, than yeah. than what 2001 portrayed.
6: I mean, to be honest, like we phrase the paper in, you know, like there might be some pleasurable feedback coming from those actions. The reason for that is that we have never observed ejaculation as a result of it. And the reason why I'm saying that could suggest pleasure is that if there was ejaculation, weep or orgasm in in females. We could start thinking about possible adaptive explanation. So, like, we are still on the stage in which definitely more research should be conducted to properly assess if there's pleasure, what what's this feedback. But uh, yeah, like, that seems like um, a possible explanation.
2: Okay, so um, if any of my listeners are interested, what's the title of the paper and where can they find it?
6: The paper is published in uh, the journal Ethology, and the title is. Do Monkeys Use Sex Toys? Evidence of Stone Tool-Assisted Masturbation in Free-Ranging Long-Tailed Macaques.
2: Camilla Cheney, doctoral candidate at the University of Lethbridge. I believe that your uh, research got written up in the New York Times, too. That is huge. Congratulations. Thank Thank you you. for coming on uh, What You Got. We really appreciate your time.
6: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Hi, I'm a 30-plus-year-old pansexual cis female, polyamorous, and currently with two partners, one of which is a queer platonic asexual relationship and the second one is a heterosexual sexual relationship. 2021 was really rough on me and it had a major effect on my libido which completely crashed. I had a breakup, a uh, death in a family and then I found out end of 2021 that I diagnosed positive for HPV. Thankfully asymptomatic, I have HPV and I am a carrier. That plus everything else that happened resulted in me or my libido just completely crashing and I haven't had sex. I haven't had partnered sex in a year. About three or four months ago, my libido started up again, which is great. I masturbate all the time. It's been super fun and awesome. Also, my partners, of course, I informed them about the diagnosis and they're all asymptomatic and didn't test positive for HPV, which I am extremely thankful for. And So I have two questions. One is, how do I get rid of this STI shame? There is an awkwardness and and a hesitation to initiate sex again with my partner. And I kind of just want to know how to erase that shame or get rid of it. And number two, how do I restart my sex life? I'm currently also very interested in just reviving it uh, with my partner. So how how do I do that with someone I trust? And second how do i engage at play parties i do miss group play um, i miss uh, partner sex so i just wanted to know if there was maybe like a quick script that you have or even you know how to go about safety precautions with hpv diagnoses
2: according to the cdc hpv infections are and they bold this on their website very common nearly everyone will get hpv at some point in their lives more than 42 million Americans are currently infected with HPV types that cause disease. About 13 million Americans, including teens, become infected each year. That 13 million teens becoming infected each year stat is a little depressing because there are there is a vaccine that protects people against the most dangerous cancer-causing strains of HPV. But there are other strains of HPV that people can get. But kids by now, young adults, people into their 30s by now, should all be vaccinated against HPV. You are in your 30s. You can be vaccinated, should have been vaccinated against HPV decade and a half ago, two decades ago. And caller, you can still, even though you've contracted HIV, get vaccinated and it will provide some protection if you are exposed to other strains of HPV that you might not have uh, or if your body clears the virus, as some most people do. A lot of people clear the HPV virus after time, and being vaccinated will offer you some protection against future exposures. Dr. Ina Park, who advises the CDC on STI issues, who's a regular guest here on the Savage Lovecast, agreed with me recently when I said that if you're poly, if you have multiple partners, even if you're a serial monogamist and you only have one partner at a time, but you've dated in a serially monogamous fashion, more than seven, eight, nine, ten people, which most young adults, and by young adults now, I guess I mean at my advanced age, people under 40 have, and if you're the kind of person who goes to sex parties, you're signing up for HPV. You're signing up to be exposed to HPV, and if you're not vaccinated, very likely contract HPV. So I feel like you're taking too much on here. HPV infection, very common. Most people, like you, asymptomatic. In a tiny handful of cases, someone with HPV can go on to develop oral cancer, anal cancer, penile cancer, cervical cancer. The vaccines protect us against those strains of HPV and everyone should get vaccinated, but those are unlikely events, hugely traumatic events in the lives of the people that they happen to, but it is unlikely that someone with HPV is going to go on to develop throat cancer or cervical cancer or one of the other shitty cancers. So wrestling with the moral dilemmas about going to sex parties, about disclosure, If you disclose the fact that you have HPV, that might cause some people who are ignorant about how common it is and how little a deal, how unbig a deal it is in the lives of most people who've had it or have it to react negatively, to reject you. Uh, It may be good for your conscience to make that disclosure. If you're in a room full of people at a sex party and you make a disclosure like that and other people in that room test regularly and are honest, you're likely to find out you're not the only one. Uh, and it's the sort of thing where it's so common and so not a big deal that I'm not sure that the onus is on the person with HPV in that room, all of the people with HPV in that room, to disclose that they have HPV. I think going into group sex settings, we take the precautions that we can take. Gay men, get on prep. Gay men, get your monkeypox vaccines. Use condoms, use barriers. Wear those dental damn underpants they finally invented if you're really concerned. But there's a certain degree of exposure and risk that you're assuming when you go to a sex party, unavoidable risk when you go to a sex party. And anybody who shows up to a sex party is essentially saying the pleasures of this event of the experiences I am going to have potentially in this room with these people, most of them strangers that I have not yet met. And what are strangers? Strangers are just friends you haven't met yet. Strangers at a sex party, fuck buddies you haven't fucked yet. Some of them are going to have STIs and may have HPV, may have HSV. They are easily transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. So even taking the precaution with Condoms and dental dams isn't going to protect you to the degree that using condoms will protect you from gonorrhea or syphilis or HIV. And so you're signing up. I'm I'm sorry, you're signing up for that risk and the potential of contracting or being exposed to. And exposure is not always going to result in a case contracted, as you saw with your Partners, where you were having sex before you found out that you had HPV, you had sex with them. They didn't contract it from you. That may mean you don't have a particularly virulent case. You're not shedding a lot of virus. Okay, it's low risk to have sex with you. I, I mean, I always feel a little weird when I'm back myself into a corner where I tell somebody with an STI, yeah, you don't have to disclose that, but. It, When it comes to HPV, even Dr. Ina Park agreed with me that you're kind of signing up for HPV when you show up at that sex party. And the onus isn't on everyone in that room with HPV, which is going to be most, if not all, of the people in that room, even if most of the people, not all of the people in that room, don't know they have HPV. The onus isn't on you necessarily to disclose or to feel guilty for not disclosing. But I would, in your shoes... I would disclose because I would want to have a clear conscience and I would also not want to wind up fucking around with anybody who is so ignorant and misinformed about STIs that they would think it was a big deal that I had HPV and I had disclosed it. That person who freaks out about it has identified themselves as someone who hasn't thought through the risks that they are assuming by showing up at a sex party and I think anybody who hasn't thought through the risks that they assume when they show up to a sex party where they're going to have group sex with multiple partners isn't a safe person to be having sex with at that party. It's probably not a person who's thought through other risks, probably not a person who's tested recently or regularly themselves.
3: Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old bisexual woman who is calling about the question regarding my last relationship with a heterosexual male of 31 years. So my partner was moving to London, which is some distance from Manchester, but not too far of a distance. We planned for this. We had everything ready. And, you know, at parts of the relationship for the last year, we had to incorporate regular trips to the countryside uh, as he ended up moving there at short notice. So my question is this, my partner very abruptly broke up with me on the phone, blocked me on all social media, deleted me everywhere, it's like I never existed, and I'm really struggling with it. We had a future planned, and I truthfully thought that this was my soulmate, this is the one. I've dabbled in the polyamory space before and had an open relationship, and I listen to this podcast regularly, so I consider myself pretty well-versed in all things kink, However, what I'm struggling to reconcile is, how does one deal with grief when someone doesn't want you in their life anymore? I want to respect his boundaries and I want to make sure that I'm not doing anything silly, but I'm really struggling to reconcile what has happened with the person I know.
2: Man, my heart goes out to you. That is a shitty way to get dumped someone you saw a future with, someone who seemed to be into you, who participated with you and envisioning that future together, who makes a long planned move and then seizes that opportunity to ghost you, cut you off, block you on all social media, block your number, not have the decency to tell you why they're ending the relationship. That's incredibly frustrating. And the not knowing not getting closure from that person that you feel you're owed some closure from closure is a weird thing we feel like we're owed it sometimes from people that we swapped a couple of text messages with on a you know a pickup app a hookup app and then we decide uh eh, no and you sometimes you know i hear from people i'm not on a lot of hookup apps myself they'll swap a couple of messages with somebody realize that they're not into it or just logistically or timing is off and they cut it off, or they just stop responding. And this is someone they've never met, someone they've just exchanged a couple of casual, if flirty, messages with, and they get long, angry messages from the person demanding closure. That seems irrational, that need for closure from somebody that you interacted with briefly on Tinder or Grindr or wherever, that's nuts. But somebody that you were with, that you dated, that you made plans, you know, even if you're going to be long distance for a while, to be together, that person disappearing on you the way this guy disappeared, yeah, that's a moment where a person owes you closure, but you're not guaranteed it. You have no way of, you know, you can't take them to closure court. You can't sue them. And, you know, Judge Judy isn't going to issue a ruling where they have to tell you what the fuck they were thinking, what the fuck happened, which is why I'm often urging people To provide themselves with closure. Closure isn't necessarily a gift you're given by the person exiting a relationship. Sometimes closure is a gift you give yourself. And I think what you may need to tell yourself at this moment is you can't know what you don't know. And there are reasons, and you don't know what they are. And that's going to be, you know, that's going to leave a scar. That's going to ache for a while. The thing is, you'll probably find out at some point. It may make it easier not knowing right now. If you just tell yourself, it's a small world, you're going to run into each other again. He's going to wind up dating somebody that you dated or having a conversation with somebody that you know, and it's going to get back to you. Or maybe he'll get back to you a year or two from now to let you know, to tell you what happened, why he left. I guarantee you If he's not a monster, if he's not a sociopath and a narcissist and you weren't 100% wrong about him being a good and kind and decent guy that you might be able to build a life with, that he feels guilty, that he feels some remorse and regret about doing what I'm sure in his mind feels like he had to do, going away and, and ghosting you like this, may not be in a week may not be in a month, may not be in a year or two, it may be in three or four or five years, he'll circle back to you. You will get some explanation from the universe at some point down the road. And the crazy thing is, by the time you hear from someone in a situation like that, by the time they bring you the closure you so desperately wanted, felt you deserved, ached for, needed five years ago, when they show up with it five years later, it's going to be at a moment where you don't really need it anymore because you were forced to give yourself the closure, to do closure for yourself on that relationship because you were denied closure from that person when they ended it without explanation. So what you do right now, The closure you give yourself right now, as imperfect as it is, is you say, I can't know what I don't know, and I can't know what he's not going to tell me, and I have no way of reaching him right now, and he doesn't want to hear from me right now. So I'm going to let this mystery be a mystery, like the existence of God, and I'm going to get out there and date. I'm young and I'm attractive. There are other people who want to be with me, and I'm going to put some emotional and sexual distance between. Me and this person, that's another form of closure that we can give ourselves when somebody disappears on us without giving us the explanation we feel we're entitled to, is get out there and create some new connections, new stories that don't have endings or when they do have endings have better endings than this relationship currently has. And then you live in hope that a new epilogue will be written for this relationship in a year or two or three or five. When you hear from him, or hear from someone who knows him, and you finally find out what the fuck happened. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Pete, the mostly pantsless tweets. We will understand if America's premier monarchy stand at Fake Dan Savage is late with the Savage Lovecast next week. Got it in and on time, Pete. A little long that intro, but on time. And to be clear, monarchy stands aren't exactly sad when kings and queens die. We're kind of fascinated astro babe tweets how about no i don't like people touching my face exclamation point a lot of people took issue with my advice for the guy who called in about non-consensual gay beard touchers people thought i should have suggested mace or a taser But it was the husband calling in, the non-bearded husband. And the bearded husband, the person whose face was touched without his consent, he said to his husband he would tell people not to do it, presumably if they were reaching for his beard, if his husband and I together could come up with a fun and friendly way to say that. Shouting, no, I do not like people touching my face. Or, of course, tasing someone as they're reaching for your beard. Neither funny nor friendly. So, not the advice I could have given given the parameters of the question that was put to me. And finally, Kate Siegel tweets, at Fake Dan Savage played my listener response call on the Savage Lovecast this week, which means I'm one step closer to my ultimate goal of being a guest on the podcast. Put me in coach. All right, Kate Siegel, I played your listener response call. Now I've read your tweet. Kind of going to have to have you on the show, I suppose. Check those DMs. Kate. Alright, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. and thanks to everybody who posted about the show to your social media this week. We really appreciate how our listeners spread the word about the Savage Lovecast. And now, listener response calls.
1: Hey, just got through listening to the part about uh, Jim's beard. <laughs> there is actually a, a tactful lie you could employ here if you were comfortable with that. Basically something along the lines of like it's a really nice beard, yeah? So, something along the lines of, oh, you know, this takes a lot of like oils to get exactly right. And if you like touch it, you know, oils from the human hand, it can kind of mess that up. You could say something like that and it would might get some strange looks, but it could work as like a gentle, don't touch my face, no sort of thing. But um, here's the question I have Can we hear from Beard Jim? <laughs> I mean, if he's listening to this, I'd, I'd really love to hear from Beard Jim.
4: Hi. For the guy who liked really wet pussy, I think if he finds a partner who is GGG, she can get empty pill capsules that are made of either like gelatin or some are vegan and fill it with a really thick lube and deposit it before sex. And then it will take some time for the capsule to dissolve. And then at some point during foreplay, a stream of lube will come out.
7: This is for the caller in episode 328 that is getting numbness in her hand after using a vibrator. I'm a fisting top and sometimes will have numbness in my hand while I'm inside a fisting bottom. I reposition my body or arm to avoid the numbness, but I found when I'm inside my fisting bottom on all fours, or I guess on all threes, I use a rocking motion with my whole body to assist in the penetration so to avoid fatigue and can go longer without numbness. Yes, I do love Dan's advice that you might be just holding your vibrator in a weird wonky way. Perhaps you could have something more sinister if it keeps happening. Maybe you grip a mouse all day for work in addition to texting and social media on your phone with the same hand. Then your one time off with a vibrator was finally the straw that broke the camel's back. Go find an OT or PT if it doesn't go away. I'm a physical therapist and it makes my day to have a patient set up a sex goal rather than swing a golf club goal.
2: And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast. Use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savage You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Minneapolis. The Hump 2022 Fall Tour is headed your way this weekend. You're up next, Kansas City, Victoria, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. We're also streaming Hump 2022 every weekend until October 16th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab tickets to a screening or a link for a streaming. And while you're there, click on submit to find out how you can get your short five minutes or less amateur porn film flick into my film festival. The deadline for Hump 2023 submissions is December 9th, 2022. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Camilla Shenny on Twitter at Camilla C A M I L L A underscore Shenny, spelled C E N N I. Also follow the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth on Twitter at LoveCast T S A R Y. The Savage LoveCast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. And Nancy, we'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage LoveCast. Thank you, as always, for downloading.